Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale podcast. Now this is a very special one, and I think you're really going to love what you're about to hear, and I don't think that you're going to be able to hear this anywhere else. Uh, this is audio from a Q&A that Tiana and I were at, and you heard us talking about Scadfash and the exhibit Dressing for Dystopia, which is down in Atlanta. We were invited for the opening uh, by Ann Crabtree, the costume designer for The Handmaid's Tale, and at the opening they also screened episode three of season two for the first time in public. Uh, so they had a Q&A with some of the cast members afterwards, and we recorded the audio, and Scadfash was nice enough for us to uh, allow us to use it, and so we're going to bring it to you. And we broke it up in two parts, so we get uh, one part this week and one part next week, just for time's sake. Uh, it's pretty awesome. You're going to hear Ann Crabtree and cast members Amanda Bruegel, Madeline Brewer, Sydney Sweeney, Ever Carradine, hashtag Lady Putnam, and more talk about this episode, and uh, most importantly, talk about how much Ann's work helps them and affects their performances, and just you are going to get some insight that you are probably not going to hear in one place anywhere else. It's pretty fantastic, and so there's some great stuff about characters and everything, so just stick around and listen to this. Uh, they tell some great stories. Before we get started, one of our Facebook friends, Tia Divine Angel, sent us a message on Saturday and said, hey, I'm in the parking lot at Scadfash. Thank you for telling us about this. It's really cool. Uh, so I asked her, hey, send us a voicemail, and we'll put it on the podcast. Share your thoughts about what you thought so that people can hear us, you know, from somebody besides us. So enjoy this. I broke her voicemail up into two parts as well. I'll play the rest of it in the midpoint of the podcast, but she has some really cool things to share and she's got some great insight and uh, describes her experience at the Scadfash dressing for dystopia exhibit. So enjoy that and enjoy the Q and a. All right. And just so you know, we did record this with the digital handheld recorder in the theater. It sounds pretty good, but just so you know, that's kind of the technology that we were working with. So if you uh, hear this and you're like, well, why does it sound like that? Uh, but we are bringing it to you. We cleaned it up as best we could. Hope you enjoy it. And I think it'll be really fun for all you fans out there. Thanks guys. I just wanted to call in and tell you guys, thank you so much for airing um, the promotion for Scad Bath out here in Atlanta. It's just a two and a half hour drive. So I broke down here. Admission is $10, but it is a lifetime worth of ex um, excitement to go in. It's so, it's so priceless. Um, first off, the mannequins are life size. So you're going in there and they're kind of, looming above you but still kind of at eye level and so it took me a moment to kind of brace myself and get the courage to walk inside and um it's perfect because you've got all of these familiar outfits but also you've got the crazy uh, that sound that they play when june is like in trouble and something crazy and dangerous and creepy is about to happen and so i was just thrilled to be walking around in there and seeing the costumes that were done. I took lots of pictures and lots of videos that I'm posting online because they don't mind you taking pictures as long as you use the, the hashtag SCADFAST. My name is Eric Wilson. I'm from InStyle Magazine, and I'm super happy to be here um, for, for many reasons, but the, the main one is that I'm a big fan of Anne Crabtree's. First, I'd like to introduce uh, the members of the, this amazing cast, um, both Emmy and Golden Globe winning series, starting with Madeline Brewer, who plays Handmaid Janine. Coming out. Alma. 
round of applause. This is played by Robert Curtis Brown. Next is Albert Carabino, who plays Commander Putnam's wife, Mayor. And a newcomer this season, playing Eden, coming out, Sydney Sweeney. And finally, please join me in welcoming the award-winning costume designer for The Handmaid's Tale, Anne Crabtree. executive producers of The Handmaid's Tales and producers of the original film, Daniel Wilson and Fran Sears, who are right here in front of me. <laughs> Next to them we have the supervising sound editor of the series, Jane Tattersall. actually start by uh, remembering a quote from the final episode of the first season uh, from June, of course. They should never have given us uniforms if they didn't want us to be an army. I think that's very powerful and it speaks to uh, sort of the, the uh, underlying messages of, of fashion. Also these dichotomies that are at play in the series, whether it's about uh, uniforms that are meant to creep to erase individuality and yet you, uh, Anne has managed to bring a lot of individuality into each look, as well as the idea of uniforms repressing uh, the, the um, members of each different class, and yet they become a symbol of uh, the opposite of that effect. So it's a, it's a major uh, psychological play that, that, that we encounter in fashion in everyday life, but here in this show especially, uh, it takes on a really important role, as important as the set design, and uh, especially when you look at the visuals, you're thinking of this last episode scene, um, June run through that cornfield, and now dressed as an Akana wife, it's, it's an incredible scene. Um, there are so many instances, uh, even in the, in the, that, that I can cite, but I'd, I'd rather hear from you, of course, because I'm talking way too long. <laughs> well, how did you approach this, this incredible job? What were the most important things to you when you started sketching up ideas? Right, as a whole, you're saying. Yes. I, I will say, preface with I'm wearing the, the least sound-friendly thing you could ever wear. So if you're hearing crunching, it's not me eating. It's... <laughs> Sorry, folks. But it's real. Okay, so, so how I approached this job was, I'm a huge fan of these two right here, their work. I mean, I, I sat in an empty theater, and my life changed when I saw that film. And once more, when I read the novel of Margaret Atwood, so, you know, I always approach it by honoring and remembering the effect that the film and the novel had on me. And then, you know, how does one express something that has been turned into a film, a ballet, you know, so many different versions of The Handmaid's Tale? It was really daunting. And so when I met with Bruce Miller and with um, Warren Littlefield, hi, I hear my hero me. <laughs> She's southern and friendly like me. Uh, good girl. So when I, when I got the job in The Handmaid's Tale, you know, both Bruce Miller and Warren Littlefield, also great artists in their own right, 
said, how can we make this so frightening and so current and not uh, a way to highlight costumes as a very sort of period piece? And you heard me say it earlier. He repeated himself. But I, um, you know, I said, I'm your girl. I'm actually incapable of creating something just for period because of my ego and also why, why, that was true, right? That's why we do what we do, because we want to have some sort of weird stamp that we leave behind. And so if you want to make a period piece look like a period piece, go work in a beautiful museum, you know, go uh, study and, and write books about it or take photographs. I can't do that. I'm a costume designer, so it has to be a combination of all those beautiful things. And I guess my, my impetus was I want to be terrified. I want to be inspired, terrified, and enlightened. Really hard. But the way to do that is to look at the world and say, how can this be a mirror? And that's really how I started. I think what's so perfect about that sentiment is that I look back at a comment that Margaret Atwood made um, when, whenever anyone asked her, how long did it take you to write the novel The Handmaid's Tale? She answered 4,000 years. It was 4,000 years of women's history and treatment. So it's all of it. It's all of that history. And you referenced all of fashion. You referenced a million things. And taking a look at your mood boards and all these inspirations behind what you did, which is what we see at the beginning of this exhibition, can you just give a, a laundry list of all the different things that, that went into these costumes? Sure. It's, it's crazy. So don't think I'm mad or think that I'm mad and, I don't know, feel like you can see yourself in me. Um, you know, it, it's everything from historical beautiful moments in clothing. It's um, being from Kentucky and really... Uh, uplifting what I saw from a childhood of beautiful industrial workwear. That's my actual chosen form of dressing every day now. You know, I like inventions. Fashion is never just fashion. It started out as this idea of how to solve a problem, right? And so now workwear is really fashionable. But at one time, it was an invention. It was a means to help people do the jobs they're meant to do. And so there's that. There's Japanese pearl divers. There's um, Hitchcock, which those two people right there, my parents, were uh, incredibly awesome at saying, oh man, man, we love Hitchcock, why can't our kids, right? That's why my, my great nieces are in the audience today. They should be enlightened. Everything is educational. And, you know, I, being from Kentucky, I spent a great time by myself in nature. I never knew that that could be cool one day. I sincerely went to FIT in New York and didn't tell anybody I was from Kentucky. Because I did it the first day, and they were like, well, Lord, what are you going to do here? <laughs> Y'all don't even wear shoes. But you know what? F you, because yes, <laughs> we don't wear shoes. But we take nature, and we, play, and we make it as inspiration in The Handmaid's Tale. You know? And um, some inspiration comes from that lady, my mother, who wore beautiful dresses, and who understood the value of, you know, she made all my clothes. You know, it, it comes from a, a woman, a homeless person that I just saw and happened to clock or sketch really quickly, or uh, a priest, you know, in 2001 in the Duomo, I happened to be there, and he was clipping, walking across a beautiful stone floor, and his fabric flap was flowing. You find that over and over in The Handmaid's Tale. It's just, you know, how to be an urban nomad. The Econo people are actually 
clothes that I have worn? And how do you make that real? And how do you make it succinct and uplift a story and envelop these beautiful actors that you see on the stage so that they feel what the story is and become it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's every actor I've ever interviewed about the performing always talks about the importance of clothing in their craft. Um, and I think in this show, it must play, a, I imagine it must play a very big part in getting into character. Maddie, I know you've, uh, on the stage, you've been both a handmaid and an unwoman. Sure, yeah. What, um, <laughs> <laughs> how, what do you, what kind of mindset do you go to put the clothes on? Um, well, I, I say this to anyone who will listen about, about, I guess, Janine. You know, I have, a, I have a very unique opportunity with Janine where I literally put on a second skin. And, uh, and when I take that off at the end of the day, kind of Janine goes with it. But so much of the exploration of Janine as a character came from talking to Anne in Pine Mountain, Georgia. Um, I was shooting a film, and she came down to me, and I just, our conversation there... Um, helped spark so much of Janine for me and her my understanding of, of the clothing and just being inside Anne's mind for even a brief moment just locks you into the world of Gilead because she's so in, you sinister woman. She's so in touch with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> so like in the best way. But then this season kind of changing over uh, at, to being an unwoman and being in the colonies, um, the, the whole... Like silhouette is completely different, and the function of the clothing is completely different, and just the little pieces um, of individuality you can maintain there are. Uh, one in particular was very important to me. Uh, I always explain this wrong, so maybe Andy can jump in here. But there's like, from the time before Gilead, there are like pieces, colored pieces of clothing that have been kept to be given. Um, as like to keep you warm, but it fits within your, your class system. Um, and Anne, we looked at a few in a fitting that were all of that kind of sickly blue that um, unwomen wear, and there was this one that was kind of this netted vest thing that Janine wears, and Anne called it a web. And then I started, I remember this moment so clearly, I called it Charlotte's Web. Are you gonna get it? Okay. And it just like then from that moment on, that was like that piece of clothing was the thing that kind of kept Janine in touch with Charlotte, even though she was like, I'm here, I'm working until I die. I still have a piece of Charlotte with me. It just like changed the whole season for me. It changed the character, it changed the colonies, it changed my view as an unwoman. It, like it was an important moment <laughs> for me. And you did so well by yourself, see? Yeah. All right, guys, quick break in the action. I wanted to bring you part two of our Facebook friend, Tia Divine Angel, and her voicemail on her experience at the SCAD Fash Dressing for Dystopia exhibit. Listen to what she has to say, and we'll get right back into the action. Once again, this exhibit is open to the public through August 11th in Atlanta, Georgia, at the SCAD Fash Museum of Fashion and Film. You can find more information about them at scadfash.org. Here is Tia Divine Angel relaying her experience at SCAD Fash. Thanks. The entire thing from the moment that you park at the top of the parking deck 
to walking out on this fake lawn patio and looking out over the beautiful view of the city of Atlanta. It was just amazing. And then the staff is super friendly and helpful. But again, we watched the Pierre Cardin exhibit first. We walked through it. And then by the time you go into um, dressing for dystopia, the handmade sale, you are completely in another world. And I was sitting there thinking, it is so intimidating. What if I were to see Aunt Lydia or the commander and Serena Joy in these outfits standing in front of me, um, complete with the little cow prod? It was just an amazing experience. And so uh, thank you all for sharing with me. And um, blessings, everyone. Bye. I think you can see some of those examples in the exhibition as well, particularly with the Red Handmaid's Tales. You'll see the sweaters actually incorporated on the mannequins, uh, because I believe you can explain better than I, but you came up with this as a concept while you were... Uh, right, working. so with the individual pieces for yeah. the handmaids. So the idea always for Bruce, it's really, really important for him to not have all of these tribal looks sort of overtake these beautiful individual faces and their expression. They're still humans, right? And I was explaining it to a student, uh, or to a lot of students at SCAD today, that it's very essential as a costume designer to have empathy and great love, not just for these people, but, you know, dire respect for even the character that they play. Because if you don't, then you're just throwing a handmaid's dress or a wife's dress or a commander's look or, you know, a new... Uh, Econo, a girl who's getting married, right? You're just put or Martha. You're just putting those clothes on. You're not thinking about the individual and the magic and the alchemy that each individual person is going to bring. And with that, long story short, as you all know me, as I talk right now, um, was the idea. We always try to come from a place of absolute reality and a place of purpose in the clothing, so that everyone, hopefully, can understand that the spider web that I that I give you know, to Janine, or the sweatshirt that I gave to Alfred. Those pieces are individual, and it's a kind of sicko thing. It's a bit manipulative, because the idea is each of those things for the audience or the DP shooting it, it'll make those people individual. But we kind of, actually with Lizzie, came up with the idea that, you know, a dump truck goes through Gilead prior to them. They've already taken over America. They're not quite Gilead, but they're taking all your clothes because you're not allowed to wear them anymore. And now you're going to be given your prison uniform of two red dresses and one cloak and one hat and some boot covers for your boots. That's it. As they take those things away, you think, oh, they're all getting thrown away, which they probably are in a landfill somewhere. I haven't quite solved that in my brain yet. But, you know, nobody can wear red anymore. And so those, in my mind and in Lizzie's mind, those uh, recycle, they recycle your clothing here, boxes in church parking lots or parking lots everywhere. You know, we came up with the idea that they only not took everything away, not only took everything away, they collected all those things from these boxes and they come to the Red Center. And in, you know, Ann Dow's beautiful voice that I will not try to do again, um, she sweetly and convincingly, whether through violence or through her voice, says, oh, my darlings, the dump truck dumps all of the red sweaters and all the red sweatshirts and all of, you know, the scarves into the gymnasium, what once was a gymnasium of the Red Center, and says, you may pick one. And that is not only for warmth, but it's going to be called the special 
I give a sort of own, my own etymology for every piece, because it's never existed before. And so the special is that sweatshirt for Lizzie, or the sweater vest that goes over folks. And it's meant to make you feel, as a prisoner, that you have one thing, one attachment to the past. And not really, because it was someone else's. How about that for insult? But it, it makes you individual. It's your only thing. It's kind of a weird adult blanket, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Amanda, you have uh, uh, all we see of you on this show is your face, really. I mean, it's, everything else is completely covered. Uh, and yet you're so expressive, often without words. You can read exactly what's going through your mind. How do you, um, how do, you do that? <laughs> Actually, with my face? <laughs> Um, I, I, it's it's such a gift, um, the the script that we're given, and I say this, and I'm not trying to sound like a jerk. My lack of lines um, are such a gift because then I'm not stuck to um, a certain amount of exposition, and I can go through a myriad of emotions um, just using my mask which is my face. And I, uh, and so what I, I do do is I tend to get a scene and I write out all of the dialogue that I would say had I have a chance to, had I had a chance to speak freely, had I had a chance to speak as if I were in contemporary times. So even while we're shooting, I still have my own lines, my own version of text that I say within my head. And so I'm, even though the audience doesn't see my mouth moving, I'm still, I'm still, there's still dialogue going on in, in my brain, and I'm responding with words, but without opening my mouth, to a lot of different things. And um, also, in season one, um, I, I really have a, a close relationship with the book, and in season one, we didn't see Cora, the other Martha in the, in, in, introduced. And um, I felt a great responsibility to somehow have her voice leak in and have her presence in somewhere. So halfway through, I decided to split Rita and start implementing Cora's voice, start implementing a more um, tender, human, gracious, empathetic woman. And so that's why you see the mask change so much on Rita, because sometimes I'll be Cora and sometimes I'll be Rita, and I do it quite intentionally. So it's not a sort of a one-dimensional, sassy, angry lady in the kitchen because that's not fun to watch it's not fun to play and it's just so much more all of us have two people living inside sometimes three <laughs> it's so i yeah yeah that's what i do and now when i do other jobs and i have to speak i get really upset like, i can't just do it in the face this isn't good enough <laughs> i also love about this exhibition is that you Begin to see some of the hidden details that are in these clothes and how those are also used to tell a story. Um, I think two examples I can think of are the zeros that are hidden in the back of the um, women uh, wardrobes, and then in the, the aunt's uniforms, there's actually something very important about the shape of the collar, but I'd rather you explain that than I. My parents are here, Eric. <laughs> I've said it a million times, hopefully they've read it at least once, sorry, ahead of time. Uh, okay, so let's start with the easier thing, which is the zero, not quite easier, but in thinking of the colonies, you know, the very term unwoman is such an assault to 
the human being and to the, the woman. You're not even a woman anymore. You're nothing. You're a zero. That was so emotionally harrowing for me as a designer to, to think of something that would assault women. And what I thought of was there's no words anymore in Gilead. And in the outer, you know, areas, the rural areas of Gilead, now known as the colonies, there's really nothing but mud and radiation. And so, I'm trying to make this long story short, I was really little in Kentucky, and my mother had a very dear friend, uh, Aiko Allen, who was Japanese, and a little girl who uh, was exposed to radiation in Hiroshima. Aiko, I hope you're listening up there. And she showed me her scars as a little girl. And it never, um, it never left me. In fact, it, it made me start to look at the photos, the books of Margaret Bourke White and images of war. And I was curious because my dad had been to war. And I started thinking, when people are assaulted and have their rights taken away and are attacked, they are the unpeople. You know, they are the zero. And so that back. I've never said it out loud. Okay. The, the back is uh, the zero uh, that we, we give to people who are victims of war. And um, the zero is for all the women who've never been hurt. There's so many of these stories too, I, and, and I know, and I, I don't want to bring up another painful one, but the, 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 even the, the, the stockings that the handmaids wear, wear yeah. really to your childhood as well. And right, so that's a funnier story. Let's go with funny. <laughs> Before we get sexual on my parents. So, so <laughs> the brown stockings, everybody, mostly fashion people, which is hilarious to me, are, are saying like, the hell? Like, what's up with the brown stockings? And they're so particular. And I think by particular, they mean they're so effing ugly, right? So that's, that's cool, because that was probably the plan. So where I grew up in Kentucky, and, uh, you know, everybody goes to church, right? That's our, that's our uh, recreation. And I loved it. I, I was in church. I was an altar boy. Um, but growing up in that time, in the late 60s and early 70s, there wasn't a lot of stockings. I remember we all had to wear tights. Uh, as little kids, and then we had to wear stockings. I'm still doing it. How strange. But um, because it was a proper thing, except that the proper thing for people of color didn't exist. And so I always would be sitting in church and looking instead of paying attention to this sermon. I was always staring at the black women who had tights that were lighter than their skin. And I remember when I was old enough to get stockings, not tights, Thank God my parents were very uh, heavy-handed with um, the rules, thank God. And I got them late. <laughs> my suntan, remember the color was suntan for people of color. It was so brown that it was almost like a horror film. And I was looking down and thinking, how could I ever change this? And so what I think we do as artists in life is we take all that strangeness and macabreness and make it funny. And so when I was thinking on The Handmaid's Tale, I thought nothing should be absolutely beautiful and everything should be slightly uh, full of tension. And, uh, and I'll say, everyone says it's not full of tension, it's just damn ugly. But I, I think, you know, that's the thing, right? If you're a man and you're designing a whole world of tribal looks and the handmaids are at the lowest place, in fact, 
the young women are at the lowest place. You don't care. You're just, you know, there's no fabric left in the world. There's no mills for making socks. Here's your color, darling. Enjoy it. It's going to keep you warm on your legs. So that's the brown of those ugly stockings. And now do you want to hear the dirty little secret about the ants? <laughs> it's not really a dirty secret. It's such a not secret anymore. But I was uh, an, an art major, actually. I never studied costume design, and I barely made it through fashion design, and I didn't complete either. But uh, I was a painting major, and thank God, in Indiana, the University of Evansville, um, you know, or was it Harlexton, their sister school in England, somehow someone introduced me to this world of Judy Chicago. She's still alive, she's still doing amazing work, and I've been hearing her name lately, and I'm so glad. But, you know, she did this beautiful dinner party, and it was all female genitalia, and I actually didn't know what a feminist was, but I was like, sick. You know, there's like the lady part right there on the bed, <laughs> on a plate. And, uh, and I really, it really kind of took me as to a place where I didn't actually realize that women could do that. And so if you're a woman who's designing as a commander, who's overlording and oppressing women, what do you do? You throw humor back in and you give the women power in a really secret way. And in television, you know, a lot of the world is up here. And so... I gave them quite uh, mannish, militaristic uniforms with a little bit of feminist mod thrown in. I love that TV show, Beatrice Alfila. If you see her best, uh, 